0: All episodes of Let the Music Play podcast can be found in both iTunes and at ashtongstofson.com. If you have enjoyed these conversations and they have brought joy, peace, and resilience to your life, we ask that you would go to iTunes and leave a review. Our hope is to share these voices and conversations with as many people as we can. And by leaving a review, you will be helping this light make its way into the world. Gideon Zhang is a pastor at Vox Vene, a community in Austin, Texas, that is learning to find ways for our lives to intersect and coming to understand how we can do more together than we can do alone. He joins us in this episode of Let the Music Play podcast as we discuss his personal reflections on what community is and how it can be a gift to the world. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafsson, and welcome to Let the Music Play.
1: I think the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was God saying, hey, like the fruit of judgment isn't yours to eat. Like, trust me, love itself, let love, let love judge you.
0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Let the Music Play Podcast. So glad you are joining us today. We have uh, just an awesome guest, a guy that's crossed paths with a lot of the people that we've had uh, over the last couple years on the podcast. Um, I crossed paths with him many, many years ago, found his teaching and insight uh, to be... um, just a beautiful thing in my life uh, many years ago. And then recently, I've kind of reconnected with some of his teachings online uh, through a community he leads in Austin called Vox Vene. Uh, and that being said, his name is Gideon Zhang, and he is joining us from Austin. Gideon, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having
0: me. Absolutely, man. So, um where where do we begin with kind of like, yourself, and your work you're doing in the world? When, when, when you introduce yourself to people, who you are, uh, and what it is you do in the world, where do you begin?
1: Um, generally, when I'm asked that question, it's kind of a tricky one. Um, often, I tell people I, I lead, I help start and lead a nonprofit. Right on. Um, uh, but I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I pastor a community that we were, uh, had the opportunity to help start, And so I've been a part of that for uh, a little over 10 years, and I've been in Austin for the last 17.
0: Beautiful. And so um, you've been doing this for the last 10 years. I know that you guys kind of approach um, church, community, things uh, in a different way. Isn't it some sort of like community center that you guys have created uh, as kind of the platform of what you're doing in Austin?
1: Yeah, so I think... Um, so there, there's a few ways to talk about the story of our community. When, when people ask, cause we celebrated 10 years last fall. And so people ask, did the, the initial vision of that, you know, starting team, did it come to fruition? So we're asked that often. Hmm. And my answer is usually, Oh dear God, no. <laughs> 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 you, you start a community and you think you have ideas. Um, but then I think what happens is like, I liken it. I have a friend who owns a food company here in town in Austin and I was at one of his uh, fall product launches and I was with, I'm good friends with one of the artists who did all the branding and all the work. And he told this beautiful story of, um, you know, working, uh, you know, worker boots. And then he had like a working worker bee theme and kind of have like honeycombs and a Had this beautiful story that wove together perfectly. And so he told the story. It was inspiring. It was incredible. And at the end of it, he goes, I have a confession to make. He said, I didn't start out with the story and then create out of that story. Hmm. He said, I just started creating and the story found me. Wow. And so I think as leaders, when you start a movement, you have to say something. (laughs)
0: right right
1: but i think most most leaders if they're honest we don't really know what's happening but we try to articulate something so that people will follow us yeah um and if in all honesty you know i think we just started creating Hmm. and then along the way i think uh the story god had intended for us found us if that makes sense wow absolutely absolutely Yeah, and then I always say, so you you mentioned that the name of our community is Vox Voxveniae. So it means voice of grace in Latin. And there's a hint of arrogance to that name in hindsight. Hmm. (laughs) So I think our younger selves had this notion that, you know, look out, Austin. We've got grace, <laughs> and we're the ones that have grace, and look out, we're going to give you grace. <laughs> and I think what happened was we found that God was already there, and grace was all over. And over the last 10 years, the city graced us with our voice. Wow. Does that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's a beautiful, and so, beautiful way yeah, to explain
1: that. Yeah, thank you. And so your question was, yeah, so we do, we have, um, we do have a community space, uh, that we started and then our liturgy was in a different part of the city but our liturgy is there and we kind of share it with a bunch of different non-profits and again there's two narratives to that so i, I think god can use anything and anyone and so um, you can tell one narrative where uh, we wanted to serve our city i think that was genuine we were serving some schools in an underserved part of austin And some of us moved there, we turned an old BYOB bar um, that was condemned by the city, there was a shooting in the parking lot, and then we took it over, opened a community space, and then, uh, you know, became a church. So that's one narrative. The other narrative is I've learned that uh, as a seven on the Enneagram, I handle my anxiety by starting new things. So what happens is, you know, I start a church, and it's terrifying. Hmm. And to to appease that anxiety, I'm like, let's start a nonprofit. Let's start a garden. Let's start an intentional community. And I think God used it. I I, I really think he did, uh, or that God did. But along the way, you know, I learned a lot of lessons. I made a ton of mistakes. I burned out a lot of people. Um, so both those t- stories are equally true.
0: Hmm. Wow. Um. It's beautiful, the the humility you share that with. Um, Has your role changed in the last 10 years? Like, Would you say that as you've learned this story, uh, was it something 10 years ago and it's a new something today, or is it just like it was 10 years ago?
1: Um, Yeah, it definitely has changed. Um, The role has changed, and I am hopefully continuing to change. And how would I articulate the way we've changed or I've changed? So, again, I think um, unconsciously when, you know, I started something or was a part of something that started, I felt all this pressure that wasn't coming from anyone else. It was probably coming from my family of origin. Hmm. But I needed a way to appease it, and so I just worked myself into the ground and burned myself out. But a lot of it, no one was asking me to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you do it in a church community, it's hard to question because everything sounds spiritual. Mm-hmm. But no one's asking if it's healthy or sustainable. Right. Both for the individual, for my families, for our leaders, for their families, for our community. And so, probably the biggest difference was um, there was a lot more frantic activity, hmm. and I would just start new things, re- redesign our vision statement and our mission, and it, it feels productive, yep. but it's just appeasing this thing that I'm, I'm I'm trying to quiet in my soul, and I didn't know what that was. So you you do it externally, if that makes sense.
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, um, and then I think, I think some of it's appropriate to, you know, I think when you're in your late twenties, early thirties, you do have this energy and you're trying to figure out who you are and it's actually appropriate to exhaust yourself so you can hit a wall. I think it's actually a reasonable developmental cycle.
0: It's all our stories, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I had to do it and I see just no one told me that, oh, like, there's more puberties later in life.
0: <laughs> Death and resurrection you know, happens a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, as it turns out, there's, there's a lot more coming. But you don't, there's no physical change. Yeah. So no one, It's harder to name, yeah. I think.
0: Yeah, that's a good word.
1: So, I'm not sure. Like, it took some stupid naivete to start a church, I think. Like, I, th- I thought we were going to fix the church.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Which is just a ridiculous notion, but it kind of takes some naive arrogance, you know what I mean? Yeah, and then in hindsight we pro- we you know we probably fixed half a problem and then started nine more. Oh wow, well. but it takes some of you know, I think God uses that. Mm-hmm. I think great art, great music, great innovation. And those things, I think there's beauty that comes from these things we're chasing. But I think if we don't hit a wall and we think that's the actual thing that we're living for, then I think, you know, it, it'll be disappointing.
0: Um, as you, so you gave this homily not long ago, um, that I just thought was was brilliant. Um, it was a beautiful, beautiful way to kind of dance. In and with the idea and the mystery that is community and, and and what's going on there.
1: That's a good question. I like how you I like how you phrased it in that. Um, I think it's bigger than um, a definition, hmm. and it, it's something that I'm still living towards.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but I think at the heart of it, you group. People together. <laughs> they live life uh, with some sort of proximity over a period of time. So that's the beginning of it. I don't yeah. think that means the community will happen, right? but I think that's how the experiment starts.
0: Beautiful. And so w- would you say, um, I think there was like a quote that you had in your homily about, like, that it being this place where our capacity to know and experience and, ex- and exchange love. Uh, really enlarges, um, how would you—I mean, as, as, as you, you're now 10 years in to basically leading a community and pursuing the things of God, finding out what love is, um, would you say that community is the place, is the threshold, um, is that intersection point where we, as people, come together and really grow our capacities— to know and understand what love is?
1: Yeah, I think, hopefully. Um, I think a lot of my understanding of the way I love and my posture of community probably comes from the work in my marriage that we're doing. Hmm. And so my my wife and I, we've been married, next year it'll be 20 years, so we're at nineteen. And so we have um, some friends that are right around that, right around the 20-year mark. And it seems like our marriage is hitting a developmentally appropriate wall. And so what's happened in our marriage is nothing that's worked for 18, 19, 20 years that worked before, it suddenly stopped working. Hmm. And it's super disorienting and scary But then in the work that we're doing, um, so my wife and I have been going regular to a couples therapist for the last two years, and a lot of that work in understanding the way I love, and then that kind of informs my understanding of the way I love in community as well, if that makes sense. Interesting. And so the, the short of it is, I don't know if I've loved anyone except myself, and I've been trying to love myself through other people.
2: Hmm.
1: So even the people in my life, that's closest to me, including my wife. And so I thought I was loving her, but I was loving myself through her. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then the things that she mirrors back to me, it feels like she's trying to hurt me or she's just doing things that are her fault. But she's simply mirroring back to me things that are just out of my eyesight. But I can't, I can't see it.
2: Hmm.
1: So I, I'd, I'd rather just blame her. <laughs> so, so,
0: so, so you're saying at a very micro level, like just within the full four walls of your home, you are, you are learning something with this relationship that's been in existence now for 20 years. Yeah, that is, that is also carrying over as a metaphor as a teaching opportunity for even, even yourself at the community level as well.
1: Yeah, I think so. So there, there's a, a psychologist, his name's Harville Hendricks, he's a Jungian uh, psychologist, hmm. and he talks about how we're all longing for wholeness. Right. So I think it's a pretty hopeful worldview. Like, that wholeness exists.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And whatever family origin we come from will leave us a gap. And so we all have trauma. We all have this gap. And then unconsciously, as young people, our trauma finds each other to be healed. We think we're falling in love, but it's just our trauma going, oh, I think this person might heal me. Wow. And then that person won't heal you. (laughs) And then you hit the wall, and then that's when healing begins. And that's when you actually learn to love. So he actually gives maybe the best account of the Exodus story I've ever heard. So he says, we all are in these codependent relationships. We know it's harmful to us, but there's a part of us that wants to keep the system in place. And he says, that was probably the Israelites' relationship to Egypt. Hmm. It was harmful to them. They were slaves, but there was a part of it that met their basic needs. Then you long for a Savior, and then a Savior appears, and so for, in that story of Exodus, it was Moses, right? And then in our marriage, we think this person we marry is going to save us and bring us wholeness. Then little do we know the Savior actually leads us to death, which also mirrors Christ's story. Mm -hmm. But then this person you marry that thinks you think will bring you wholeness uh, will destroy the things you think you need (laughs) and then you get to the other side the promised land you're expecting milk and honey and grapes and then in the story of the exodus it turns out you have to grow your own grapes
0: (laughs) yes that's a good word
1: yeah and so that's helpful to me in marriage and then so when i was doing a lot of that work or i am still doing a lot of that work with between my wife and myself we actually just saw our therapist this morning i started asking questions hmm I wonder if community at its best, if we can sit with each other long enough so that we can mirror back parts to us that we can't see, but also mirror back to each other that we each are worthy of love. Mm -hmm. This thing that we're chasing out in the world, in our career, um, we don't need anything, those things, because we're already worthy. But the problem is, a lot of the times, we have so many communities in the U.S., when the mirroring's about to happen, I think sometimes it can get awkward or we don't know what's happening or it feels like someone's hurting us, then oftentimes we'll just run to another community. When that's, I propose, maybe that's the point where healing's about to begin.
0: Hmm. So when you, when you use the word mirroring, um, and, and you talk about rather pursuing things, causes, people for them to be a mirror for you. uh, Hold my hand on exactly kind of what you're getting at when you talk about you getting to be the mirror for someone and and reflecting back to them that intrinsic beauty, intrinsic goodness, and so forth.
1: Yeah. So um, I think most of the time when when I, I'll just speak for myself. Let's say I step into a room whether I know the people or not, I'm probably more worried about what people think about me. And so I don't have my own sense of worthiness. And so I'm either trying to dress a certain way, act a certain way, perform a certain way. And then what I'm wanting is people to be impressed. But I'm, I'm, I'm manipulating the ways that, they can mirror back to me that I'm worthy, but those are just things I'm doing. It's not who I actually am.
2: Yeah.
1: But what, when I, when I'm doing that, though, I'm trying to pull the energy to myself.
2: Hmm.
1: And the opposite of that, I'm not. I'm not great at it, still. But would be to say, okay, in this room, in this moment, having this conversation with this person, what are what are some ways I can let them know they're worthy of love? I think you know, listening and empathy goes a long way. Not pulling energy towards self, you know, maybe affirming not things they do, but who they are. Hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so you would say that to become the mirror for for people, um, which is of the utmost. I mean, I think that's the highest calling. The the more I hear you break this down a little bit, um, some some steps that we can take towards that. More questions, more listening, uh, more seeking to understand these people, whoever they are that we interact with, be it strangers or commu- yeah. be community.
1: Yeah, or sometimes how I put it is, am I doing this thing to be loved, or am I doing it out of love?
0: Hmm. That's good.
1: So the act, the act in itself can be the same. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you an example from so. My examples are weird because I have a strange vocation, right? So pastoring is this weird thing, Um, but there's a performance side of being a pastor that people often don't talk about, but it really brings up the worst version of myself at least. Mm -hmm. And so I have a disproportionate relationship to my need to perform in terms of Let's just say uh, any, any given homily. And I would probably, you know, 99% of the homilies I've given are to be loved. Wow. Again, God can use anything, which I'm thankful for. <laughs> but I think I'd rather participate with how God works rather than Him always having to use my attempts to earn love,
0: hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Talk about that so participation.
1: Yeah. So I've I've had a recent epiphany. So my dad was telling my sister, my younger sister, how he taught me how to swim. I don't hold any resentment against my father. I think his generation, that was like the main ways dads taught their sons how to swim. But I was four years old. He was telling my sister recently. He was like, hey, you want want me to tell you, uh, you how I taught your brother how to swim? She said, sure. He was four. I told him to jump in the water. And he was scared, so he said no. And so I told your brother, hey, do you want a Coke? And he was like, yeah. So we were walking to get a Coke, and I pushed him in the water. <laughs> and, he, and he could swim. Yeah, He was super proud of himself. Again, I don't harbor any resentment. I think a lot of dads of that generation, there were probably books about how to teach your kids how to swim, yeah. to just push them in. But I think I realized my need to perform feels like life or death. Hmm. Like I'm trying to survive. And so uh, I think a lot of pastors, whether they're conscious of it or not, are, you know, it's that there's, there's feedback for their performance that they're chasing. And until I can name that and go, you know what? I just need to be helpful I need to trust that if I engage the scriptures, just as a human being, anyone who engages the scriptures, and like Martin Buber, you know, if we yeah. can have uh, a subject-to-subject relationship with yeah. the scriptures, yeah. I think there's there's meaning and truth that will come forth. And I just need to trust that.
2: Yeah.
1: And so that's that's an example of where my work is, and how just even with my community, can I lead out of love rather than leading to try to be loved?
0: Yeah. You quoted um, Jean Veneer a few times in that homily, and one of them was this quote where he says, to love someone is to reveal to them their capacities for life, the light that is shining in them. Yeah. I mean, would you say that, that you have uncovered or maybe discovered a bit recently that as a leader of this community, um, one of the most central roles that you have is to constantly find ways to remind people that this community is there simply to reveal to each other who they are, at the deepest level, their goodness, their beauty, their worthiness. Um, I just, I got such a, a unique shift in this homily that you gave around community from you, the leader of this body, um, kind of saying, hey, guys, this is, this. we are here for each other. We are meant to mirror this truth about all of us.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think I, I wouldn't put, put it as... I think you said is my role to remind the community mm-hmm. but that sounds like I've I've already learned how to do that. <laughs> yeah. So I might put it maybe my role is to remind myself in front of the community.
0: Yeah, that's good.
1: Cuz I'm I'm in it with them like totally. I'm not I'm not great at it but I think community at its best would do that. But that's that's hard. Mhm.
0: Mhm. And that's a very different conversation than many communities are having.
1: Yeah, and it's much easier to do something for someone because it kind of appeases their need. I think at the beginning of that quote, John Van says, when you love someone, I think I'm paraphrasing, it's not, you don't first do something for them, Mm -hmm. but it's to mirror to them that they're worthy of love, I think. Yeah. But it's, you know, I've spent most of my life learning if you love someone, do something for them, and it's it's effective because you fix their needs short term and then you kind of appease your own salve of the soul like mm-hmm. it it kind of gives you some dopamine as well
0: a box to check,
1: yeah, a box to check yeah um and then if you think about it, so my i'm not I'm just thinking loud here, but we've had relationships with churches in developing countries and oftentimes you know we've really tried hard to make it mutual and not you know patriarchal um but if i've thought of the times that we met their physical needs so we, we had a relationship with some friends of mine in india for years and it was um a church that was probably the middle, maybe middle, lower class um, in Chennai. And we've provided some material resources. And the question I've been asking is their, their, their basic needs are met. They're actually fine without us. And is it every time I'm buying them a sound system or a chair, I'm in some way communicating to them that what you have currently is not worthy enough. Hmm. You need this. Hmm. I'm I'm not sure what the answer is, but those are questions I'm asking. Because we were taught, let's just do something out of love.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think it's much harder to mirror to someone that they're worthy of love. Yeah, Because I think you have to have a mirror to yourself. too. You can't give someone something you don't have. That's right.
0: Yeah. Healed people, heal people, something like that. I don't know who said it. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things you, another question, and I love that you lead with questions more than answers. Um, and that homily was, you know, what if we're being perfected from the need to judge others and ourselves? Um, hel- help me understand that. Because I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful question, but where where are you leading us with that question?
1: Yeah, I think I was just thinking, if there's this promise that there is something being perfected, is it morality? And if that's the case, then it doesn't seem to be the case in my life Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or most of the people i know trying to be loved by god and to love god because again that only has to do with awareness and then kind of societal structure of what's right and wrong right but i'm probably not aware of what 90 95 percent of what's going on in my life so the more i'm becoming aware I'm losing that game. <laughs>
2: hmm. Like,
1: I might find freedom in one symptomatic behavior. Either it's just like whack-a-mole, it's popping up somewhere else because I'm not dealing with the source of it. Or I'm becoming aware of 10 other things that I wasn't aware of. Right. So, so I, you know, I went down the line. Or is it then, is it like theological precision? Is that the perfection? And then how we talk about kind of the original narrative and original poetry in Genesis in our community, you know, we talk about how, you know, things are really, really good. There was a sense of beauty and goodness. And the, in, in, in the story, I think the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was God saying, hey, like, the fruit of judgment isn't yours to eat. Like, trust me. Love itself. Let love let love judge you. And we're like, no, judging seems fun. <laughs> and then when when we ate of the fruit of judgment, the first person in the story we judged was ourselves, right? Shame entered the world. Yeah. And then somehow then we weren't enough. And then I I think it's possible that the the symptoms of the divide and disruptive behaviors in the world probably come from our shame
2: yeah.
1: and our lack of worthiness. Yeah. So I started thinking then, what if God's perfecting us from the need to judge ourselves and others? And that to me feels freeing and and feels like, oh, okay, that's an invitation, you know, back to original intention. Yeah. Or wholeness.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or whole Right, mm-hmm. exactly. It's 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 perfection back into original wholeness, pre-shame, um, pre-the world's divided into the ins and outs, the right, the wrong, the good, the bad.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's really hard. We're, we're taking our community through some nonviolent communication training, and the beginning of that is learning how to make statements without judgment. So you're making observation rather than making statement of judgment.
2: (laughs) And it turns
1: out, turns out, turns out I'm really good at judging. (laughs) Like I'm fantastic at it, (laughs) but that's what we're taught. Right. And I think, I think in a primal world, in in an ancient world, I think that was important because what you didn't know, what was foreign could probably kill you. Mm Mm-hmm. So in that primal worldview, I, I think that need, that basic need, was helpful, but I think there's an invitation in the Scriptures to, I think, move beyond that and to trust God with, with judgment.
0: And so the perfection... Is it is it a perfection into awareness? I mean, is that... Like collectively, if, if we begin this dialogue around community, what is community? What is happening through community? W- would you say that one of the more beautiful spectrums of light, I know we can't define it, um, but, but would you say that just this perfection into awareness, I think, after having this conversation with you, seems to be one of the beautiful ideas that community just may be?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. And maybe being known and loved. Yeah. When when we can at least try to practice letting go of our judgments. Then I think hopefully safer spaces are created. So we're we're all making mistakes and we're all longing for hope, and we we all carry all this shame. But then but then we hide it, right? And so we create these religious institutions where whoever just has a better game at hiding it wins, and then they're given the seat of authority. But then what happens is it makes people feel alone and unloved and more shame. And I think that if we can create spaces where we can share stories. Uh, of our own mistakes and people can go, Hey, me, like me, me too.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Then we feel a little less alone. And then I think some of that can start to surface to be healed. And then I think when we bring the parts of us that we're ashamed of and then we're mirrored back, no, you're still worthy of love. You just told me that and you've been carrying the shame and you're super embarrassed and you've been alone in this, and I'm mirroring back to you, hey, me too, Um, I think that's what heals and changes
0: us. Hmm. So it is, community is the place then where we have the opportunity and the possibility to come together and be collected in lieu of being isolated and alone.
1: Yeah, and to work at being fully known and loved. Yeah. Yeah. wow. I actually heard, okay, this is a weird reference. Mm-hmm. I heard Lena Dunham in an interview and she someone asked her what she hopes to accomplish in her writing. <laughs> so I don't I don't know what kind of artistic taste you have and I know girls is not on a lot of people's palette of art and that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. But she said to be able to um, to be able to laugh find humor in our pain and to be a little less alone in it. Hmm. And when she said that, I was like, man, if if churches could at least strive for some of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it was just such a beautiful, profound Mm -hmm. way, at least for me, of how she articulated.
0: Yeah. Church is the place that should say, yeah, us too. Me too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And to take ourselves a little less seriously, right? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, We—I just had a 20-year reunion with the first church I pastored in Detroit, and I started when I was 23. I was a youth pastor, and it was pretty meaningful. Some of these, you know, these kids are now 35 kids, but they remember a lot of the advice I gave them. And it was the worst. It was terrible, (laughs) and it's embarrassing that they remember. (laughs) But it reminded me just to take myself and all of us to take ourselves less seriously. Because mm-hmm. God used it. it. was a super meaningful season yeah. in my life, and my life, and it was super meaningful in their life. I disagree with most of what I said back then.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I had this conversation yeah. with a friend today in Michigan, um, mm. and we had this dialogue around um, the, the change, the experience, the awareness that we gain. And how at each new stage of life we look backwards and we kind of go, man, can you believe that is what I thought was true? Um, yeah. But not to deny that, to just say, yeah, that was that was part of the dance. That was part of getting to here. And ten years yeah. from ten years yeah. from today, I'm going to look back at today and go, man, I can't believe I thought that was
1: true. hmm mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it just shows you're maturing as human being. Right. Right. Yeah, my boys. I have a, I have teenagers. They they call it. <laughs> they hate it when I use this word. They call it cringe. Like dad, you're so cringe. cringe. <laughs> but but I think when you look back on your life, and there's an element that it's cringy.
0: Yeah.
1: It's good. It just shows that it's it was probably developmentally appropriate.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think a lot of, at least this is how I see it. A lot of the evangelicalism or the fundamentalism I grew up with was actually there's, there is some beauty in it and it's developmentally appropriate for children. Cause I think children need strong boundaries and rules. You know, when someone's two, they shouldn't touch the stove. I don't even need to explain to them, just don't touch it. But then I think maybe where the ceiling was too low was maybe versions of our fundamentalism or evangelicalism was told that's to the box So just stay in it and then spend the rest of your life defending it. Mm -hmm. Where it was, it should have been just like a nice, beautiful, gradual step to the next stage of faith and maturity.
0: Yeah. Yeah, each step to more openness and then more surrender and letting go. Um,
1: Wow, that's a good word. Yeah, Cringed. (laughs) (laughs) I have a, I met with a, an older pastor. He's about to retire, and he, um, he he's led a contemplative community for the last forty years, and he's retiring at the end of this year. And he's in his seventies. He kind of looks like Mister Clean, really smiling, bald. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, you know, do you have any advice for someone who's you know a younger pastor like myself? And he leaned back and he smiled, and then he goes, "Get in." let it be so, <laughs> and he just starts laughing. <laughs> oh, and I don't know, that was, that's been really helpful. He goes, nothing in this community that's meaningful. He was like, it wasn't my idea or my intelligence. Everything of meaning in this community happened because God, you know, birthed it through this community. Mm-hmm. And for him to be, you know, on on the the other side of his, you know, vocation and calling, and then it prompted me to reflect on, you know, that's true of my life, it's true of this beautiful community that, I I I don't know how it started, I feel honored to be a part of it, and everything that's beautiful that I get to be a part of, was happened because it was supposed to happen, mm-hmm. so. So I, I like breaking out in random laughter now. I'm just like, let it be so. <laughs>
0: That's a good word. Oh, man. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just fewer words the longer you get down the road. Everyone has fewer and fewer words for you. Um, so you ended with a Mary Oliver poem, which is kind of the perfect way to end almost any homily. It's something of Mary Oliver's. <laughs> um. You kind of can just spin the roulette wheel, and whichever one's there is probably going to work in some way. Um, And it was called I Know Someone. I had never heard this one before, um, but I wanted to read it. I wanted our listeners to hear this, um, because I thought it was just, for this idea of community, a really, really insightful piece of poetry here. She wrote, I know someone who kisses the way a flower opens but more rapidly. Flowers are sweet. They have short, beatific lives. They offer much pleasure. There is nothing in the world that can be said against them. Sad, isn't it, that all they can kiss is the air? Yes, yes, we are the lucky ones.
1: Uh, man.
0: What was your hope? I mean, what do you pull from that when 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 you walk away from those words? What what sticks with you?
1: Um, so first off, every time I read a Mary Oliver poem or I hear one read, my first thought is, how did she? How did she do that? <laughs> like how did, how does she do that? It's like it's like magic. Yeah. Um. I think I started um, the homily talking about uh, Carlo Rovelli, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how interaction, he's like, all reality is interaction. He's like, things aren't things, they're happening. That's right. Yeah. Right. And then I think, and then I think he says, like, the way we interact with the world, he's like, should be like a kiss. I think that's where I got the metaphor of a kiss. Yeah. yeah. And I just really liked that picture. Because even objects aren't things. They're, he calls them happening. They're, yeah. they're interactions. And then our place in this world is the the delicacy of how we interact with the worthiness of everything that's around us and the the gentleness of the kiss. So I really like that. And so I think um, I I paired that with Mary Oliver and talks about how, you know, the the beauty of um, even these flowers that get to kiss and then maybe just to ask that question then that but we get to kiss each other or we get to interact with each other we have happenings with each other and how do we how do we hold that space with uh, honor and dignity and cuz that's a hard that's a hard because day to day i don't i don't think of the world like that mm-hmm. i don't think of stra- strangers like that and i just really like that metaphor of like, a kiss
0: yeah, it was it was beautiful. I mean, that's the music. That's that's the whole idea of this podcast is how can we collectively move from being noise and join to being the music. Um I love it. So as we kind of conclude this conversation, um what's cur- currently keeping you curious? Is there any new books, any ideas? Um ten years in, any anything that is really piquing your interest these days?
1: Um, I I read quite a bit and I watch movies quite a bit. Um I'm trying to think of what I'm currently reading. Um I'm reading Kafka on the Shore. It's a Mirakami book. Uh familiar with uh Haruki Mirakami. Um If you're not, the book to read would be 1Q84, um, which is an incredible book. It's it's fiction. He's a Japanese writer. Oh, gotcha. Translated into English. Yeah. Um, Probably books that I have, that I'm currently reading. Uh, James Allison, he is a Jesuit theologian. Uh, He lives in Spain, Um, but he is, I think he's from the UK. He's English. And um, he, we're actually bringing him in in the fall, awesome. and we had a chance to sit down with him. Um, and he wrote this book that's just... It's one of the most profound books that I've read. So he says a, a lot of communities have a sense that a moralistic atonement theology is helpful to a certain degree, but it's also new in Christianity. You know, we can... Trace it to a certain segment of, you know, probably post-migration faith.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he says, "But we don't, we don't really have a pieced-together version of what, what is what is our theology then, um, if we don't believe in a moralistic atonement theology." And he has this book called "Jesus the Forgiving Victim," hmm. uh, and then. The subtitle is Listening for the Unheard Voice. It's it's incredible. So he does, he unpacks a lot of Rene Girard. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, and so basically, Girard basically does a lot of the scapegoating, right? And so societies and human beings, we need scapegoats. And if you're not conscious of it, you'll kind of outsource that so that you don't have to feel it yourself. Right. right? You transfer right. your pain on other people. Yeah. Right? And then, so he shapes this whole beautiful narrative of basically that's who Christ is. Christ is like, you need a scapegoat and I'm the one and let, let me carry it so you don't have to keep pushing it onto the marginalized or the other or the people that you don't understand. Um that's incredible. Um there's a book called The Way to Love. It's a small book. Uh Anthony DeMello. Um he's also Jesuit uh but he was an Indian priest. Oh, wow. He's no longer alive, and he has this little pocketbook that, oh, man, it, yeah, it's 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 been super, super profound and, and, and helpful. So that's what I'm reading right now. My fun book is the Kafka uh, at the Shore. Awesome. Book. And then,
0: Love it. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self?
1: <laughs> oh, man. Um, I probably, maybe two answers to that is probably none. Just whatever was supposed to happen was supposed to happen Yeah. and it's okay. You know? Um, but I did have a recent, uh, insight. So, um, I got ordained a couple weeks ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is weird because most people take, you well, know, two things that are weird happen. I didn't tell my community. That's weird. That's unusual. <laughs> Uh, and it took me 20 years, which is also unusual. Most people get ordained their first three to five years. So for 20 years, I always pushed against it, and these were my reasons. I don't need institutions. I'm not into titles, da-da-da, right? And then I'm a part of a larger community uh, denomination. They kind of gently nudged me towards it. You know, it's okay, just, just go. So two weeks ago, I was sitting in Detroit, and their annual meeting was there, I was at the rehearsal, and I found I was like a teenager. I couldn't sit still. And again, all these reasons were going through my head. You know, I don't, I don't really need this. What am I doing? And then afterwards, we were having dinner, and one of our pastors was there. He was there for uh, some meeting, and we were processing this. And I was like, you know, talking about institution, talking about title, talking about power, authority, hierarchy. I think at one point I talked about aesthetic. <laughs> just, just reaching,
2: right?
1: <laughs> but just all out of sorts. And um, this pastor Waylon, he knows me pretty well. And so my story comes from fundamentalism. So there was my faith was mainly about rules and things I couldn't do. Uh, my parents are immigrants, so immigrant families. It's quite normal. It makes a lot of sense actually. You land in a country, everything's foreign, so everything feels dangerous. Hmm. So they were just trying to keep me safe. And so I wasn't allowed to leave the house very often. And then both my parents come from abandonment narratives. Hmm. And so usually, you know, they, they'll overcompensate and just kind of. So there was a lot of repression in, in my early kind of story. So I was talking about all this and, you know, trying to name all these reasons why I don't want to get her date. And then Waylon, one of our pastors, he just pauses. He goes, do you think this title, Reverend, represents all of that oppression, repression? And I was like, holy shit, I think so. <laughs> this was the night before uh I was about to get ordained. Wow. And I was I was a little embarrassed at first because I was like, I cannot believe this. Like mm. I'm not a teenager anymore. And then I just practice some compassion with myself.
0: Hmm.
1: Or uh, uh my jungian analyst tells me to put my arm around the younger version of myself. Yeah, totally. And it was really healing because as an adult, I actually enjoy pastoring. I, I I live a life that I feel very honored and blessed to be a part of. And it was it was like I needed this ordination to keep bumping up against to kind of name what needed to be healed, and to say, that's not my story anymore.
2: Hmm.
1: And so so would I change that it took 20 years? I don't, I don't know. I, maybe I needed those 20 years to figure some stuff out yeah. to allow things to surface, to be healed.
0: Yeah, even if it was just for that moment. Hope I get to come see you soon, man. It's been too long.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ashton. I appreciate it.
0: All right, Gideon. Um, we will chat soon and uh wish you all the best you can stream this episode and all other episodes of let the music play podcast both in itunes and at ashtongasafson.com if you have enjoyed these conversations and they have brought joy peace and resilience to your life we ask that you would go to itunes and leave a review Our hope is to share these voices and conversations with as many people as we can. And by leaving a review, you will be helping this light make its way into the world. Thank you for entrusting us with your time. We know it's your most precious resource. And we are so grateful to have you join us as we do our little part in helping humanity tune up into a beautiful and lovely song. And so as you approach this week, May you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebird sing, and be love.